0: I'm Alex Wong, and the Wong Takes start now. Hello, everyone. It is Tuesday, January 1st, 2019. Welcome to 2019. It is officially the new year. Now it is the third year that The Wong Takes has been in existence. We started this show in, I believe, July of 2017. And we are heading strong, getting close to the third decade of the 21st century. Hope everyone had a happy holiday season. Um, Sorry I wasn't able to get uh, an episode up last week, but I just uh, was away for a little while and uh, got sick and it just wasn't pleasant for a while. But I am back. I think I'm on the downslope of my cold, the common cold. And we are ready here to record. And there was so much stuff we missed. Holiday season is filled with gift-giving and loved ones and also lots and lots of sports. <laughs> and uh, that's what this show is about, I, I suppose. Um, but, you yeah, know, Christmas... It uh, was great. Uh, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever you celebrate. I uh, hope you had a happy holidays, and I hope you will have a happy new year in the future. Uh, and we have a pack show today with uh, football, for the most part. If I have time, we might get into something else. But for the most part, we're talking about football today, uh, because that's what's been going on over the last couple of weeks, and there's so much stuff that we want to get to. So let's get started without further ado. Into the college football playoff semifinals. Actually, uh, first, I want to give a shout out to. Um, no, shout out. We haven't been in the Challenge in a long time. First, uh, I just want to give a shout out to UCF, who uh, actually played pretty decently despite. Uh, well, there was all the talk about could they beat uh, another SEC team. Some people didn't think this game would be that close, but. UCF is not a fluke. They hung their tough against LSU despite falling 40 to 32. And even though they had to fight with their second, uh, or their fight with their backup quarterback, and there were injuries and penalties on both sides, um, but UCF hung in there. And their offense stalled at times, and we started to see their lack, well, without their starting quarterback, their lack of a spark on offense when things got kind of rough and tumble. But nonetheless, uh, great job from UCF. But let's get into the semifinals and why you probably clicked on this episode. And let's begin with the one seed versus the four seed, Alabama versus Oklahoma. And I think the one theme that you're going to take away from every team that we see in this playoff and how it unfolded is these teams are who we thought they were, and no one was let off the hook. Um, When we came into this, let's start with Oklahoma. I mean, we knew Oklahoma had a great offense— but no defense, and especially in the passing game. And then Alabama has a powerful offense and a stout defense. So Alabama had a really balanced attack in this game. I mean, this was a – this game was not really, I mean, as close as it appeared. I mean, Alabama in this game had 200 yards rushing and 328 yards passing, and at least from my point of view, what I thought, it looked like every first down play gained at least five yards. And – Alabama never really faced a second, third, and long on offense. I mean, they, they never really struggled to move the ball. And when you don't put your team behind the sticks like that, when you have, you know, third and threes, second and fours, uh, third and ones, and you're, you're consistently just being able to shove the ball down their throats when you need to, I mean, there's no team that's going to stop you there. Uh, and, and one question, I think, coming into this game, also on offense for Alabama, was how was Tua Tagovailoa going to be? Because he went down in the ACC championship game, he was playing pretty poorly, and then he went down with that uh, injury, and then Jalen Hurts had to come in and bail him out. But uh, Tua, I think, answered any questions of his health or his performance in this game. Not only did he go 24 for 27, which is a record for completion percentage in a bowl game, or uh, second highest completion percentage in a bowl game, Uh, in addition to 318 yards passing, but his mobility didn't look limited at all. I mean, he was able to escape the pocket when he needed to, make tough throws on the run, throw across his body. I mean, he didn't have any issues uh, in in this game. Plus, having pinpoint accuracy didn't really hurt. I mean, he didn't make his receivers work too much either. Um, On the defensive end, Alabama was pretty good for a while. Um... Kyler Murray was off at times in this game. I mean, this wasn't Oklahoma's best offensive performance, but it started with uh, pressure from Alabama. And what what I thought was going to be a big factor coming into this game was was Alabama going to be able to stop the big plays from Oklahoma because Oklahoma is a Big 12 offense, and they've built a lot of their um, offensive scheme around getting, you know, Marquise Brown and CeeDee Lamb and those those fast wide receivers out in space and letting them work on DBs and getting them open looks down the field and Kyler just having a big enough arm to get it to them. But in this game, Oklahoma really only had one big throw, and that was the deep touchdown uh, down the middle. And so Alabama, because of this, was able to really have control of the game throughout. I mean, one thing that I noticed, I, I felt like, was it, that even though Oklahoma kept they sh- they showed grit in this game. I mean, there was they they were down twenty eight nothing to start out the game, which is obviously a huge hole. But they they you know they fought back. They never made it a blowout. But what I felt at least was that Oklahoma never really was back in this game because what Alabama was able to do was use their experience and their knowledge of being in this situation, what is it, five straight college football playoffs now, they were able to keep control of the clock, keep command of the clock, not let Oklahoma get any offensive momentum whatsoever because anytime Oklahoma would score a touchdown or march down the field, Alabama would spend five, six, uh, five, six seven minutes just running the ball down their throats and not letting anything happen uh, quickly on the offensive end for Oklahoma. And that's how you stop that explosive Big 12 offense. Also, let's talk about the 28 nothing lead. I mean, Alabama came out in this game firing on all cylinders, offense, defense, special teams. And it's not like Oklahoma made a bunch of critical mistakes to start this thing out. That like It's not like they threw three pick-sixes in a row. I mean, it was just a few three-and-outs, and Alabama's gone. Uh, I mean... You cannot let up against the Nick Saban team, especially when they're hungry like you would be in a college football playoff. I mean, they know what the stakes are, and they know that they're going to come out with a sense of urgency that Oklahoma just didn't have. So when Kyler Murray uh, was not able to get off to a hot start and the defense was a little bit flat-footed, Tua and the offense exploited that. I mean, the first play of the game was a 50-yard throw. So that's just that is kind of a microcosm of how this game was. It's... Oklahoma has a lot of talent. They're just not up to the experience and up to just the pure, raw athleticism uh, of uh, of Alabama. And as far as Oklahoma, I mean, on the defensive end for them, 528 yards uh, uh, given up on offense just really can't be on defense, just can't be overstated uh, in, in a game of this magnitude. And the offense really didn't play poorly in this game. 471 total yards of offense, 417 Uh, of them from Kyler Murray both in the passing and the running game and this game wasn't very different from a lot of games Oklahoma has played in the past Uh, I mean just look at say the Texas game uh, or or whatnot and these games where they they struggle a lot and their defense in particular struggles a lot but they're playing against opponents that are going to let up and give the offense time to get back into the game Alabama is not going to do that Whenever Oklahoma, like I said, got close, Alabama just pushed the lead out again, and they were never really threatened. And so the defense just never was able to get a key stop. And that's what I I get a lot of people were saying about, you know, um, Oklahoma shouldn't be in the playoff because of their defense. And this is the reasoning why, is because you knew it was pretty much a foregone conclusion. You knew how this game was going to go. You didn't know if it was going to be a... Uh, 45-34 game or a 59-51 game, but you knew it was going to be something like that, where Oklahoma's defense just can't get a key stop, and it becomes a shootout to the point that Oklahoma's never going to win this because Alabama's defense and poise is just too much for them. The other semifinal, which I didn't spend nearly as much time watching um, because I was away, um, Clemson beat Notre Dame 30-3, and The Clemson defense, or Clemson has dominated teams all year with the exception of a few games, maybe like the Texas A&M game and the, um, what was it, Syracuse game. Uh, But their defense is really their calling card. Uh, And in this game, they only gave up three points, and Notre Dame had, what, eight punts, a fumble, a turnover on downs, interception, and a field goal. That was their drive chart. I mean, um, but Trevor Lawrence has really brought this offense to a whole new level. I mean, Clemson has had good quarterbacks. Deshaun Watson a few years back, Kelly Bryant a few years ago, but Trevor Lawrence is really something else. In this game, he went 27 for 39 and had 327 yards uh, passing. Made some great deep throws to Justin Ross and T. Higgins, and that was able to really put the game away in the first half, and what strikes me is his poise. I mean, he's a freshman after all, He shouldn't be playing this well on this stage. I mean, those throws he made, the offense had not been playing super well in the first half, but those three throws were able to put this game away right away. And they were tough throws and tight wind in in, uh, small windows, as NFL's next-gen stats uh, would say. But it was just that, those big plays, that Notre Dame's defense couldn't stop because partially because of injuries, partially just because of ability that was able to make the difference in this game. Also, Travis Etienne, shout out to him, had 109 rush yards, including a 62-yard run to cap off the scoring. It was the only score of the second half. And Notre Dame's offense, making a quarterback switch midway through the year, they weren't playing their best, and Notre Dame's offense was not strong enough to make a dent in this defense, um, which is why the championship matchup is so intriguing. So the result of these two games, which were the... Cotton Bowl and the Orange Bowl, is the national championship game, January 7th, 2019, in Santa Clara at Levi Stadium, home of the 49ers. And what we're going to see, those two teams are going to see, is Spamma Clemson for the fourth time. In 2016, the first of this, uh, I guess, Mecca rivalry in college football was the 2016 title game where Alabama beat Clemson 45-40. to The 2017 title game, Clemson beat Alabama on a last-second touchdown from Deshaun watson Hunter Renfrew, who's still on the team, 35-31. And last year's semifinal between Alabama and Clemson, where the final score was 24-6. to And these teams really are so much better than everyone else, Alabama and Clemson. And it showed in the semifinals. I mean, maybe with the exception of Georgia, who nearly was able to beat Alabama in the SEC championship game but didn't make it to the playoff because of their loss to LSU earlier than the year. Uh, neither of these semifinal games were particularly close. And most semifinal games, actually, in the playoff era haven't been close. But these games in particular, in particular really weren't expected to be. And like I said, these games played out how we thought they would. We knew that Alabama-Oklahoma was going to be a high-scoring game, but Alabama just had too much on defense. And with Notre Dame and Clemson, just Clemson's defense was going to be too much, and Trevor Lawrence is playing amazing. So these games played out as expected, and Alabama and Clemson are 1-2 and two by a veritable mile. Um, so what's going to be interesting to watch on this stage is Number one, can Clemson's defense stop Alabama, first of all? Because no team has been able to stop Alabama's offense so far, especially when uh, Tua is clicking. And also Trevor Lawrence getting his first major test on the big stage because the biggest games he's had to play this year were maybe like the the squeaker in Syracuse, the squeaker in Texas A&M, and then the uh, hyped-up game that ended up in nothing against Boston College. So... Trevor Lawrence gets his first major test, and it's on the biggest stage. Alabama's defense is quick and physical and tough and pro-ready, and a lot of pro-ready players, and they know what's on the line, especially the seniors. Uh, and so they're going to be ready to go, and will Clems- will Trevor Lawrence be able to step up and make throws when he needs to? Also, speaking about the Clemson defense, I forgot to mention this earlier, but Tua is... Despite how well that Alabama offense plays, he's going to be, have to be 100% against the Clemson D. Because against Oklahoma, he looked really good. But he said he's going to be continuing to do therapy and treatment uh, 24-7 around the clock, sleeping in cryo chambers and everything. or Hypo-something-baric chambers. Either way, he's going to have to be ready because he's going to have to scramble. Because that D line led by Christian Wilkins and the like are going to get on him quick. So that's, that's what I think he's going to have to be ready for. My prediction for this game, my uh, long-awaited prediction for this game, is going to be Alabama defeating Clemson for their fifth national title in eight years, 31-21. Um, but I wouldn't bank on the under. I think this game might very well hit the over just based on the offense on both sides. I think Alabama is just too experienced, especially on the offensive end, and they're going to come out clicking right. I don't see any reason they won't come out like they did against Oklahoma. But this game, I think, is actually going to end up being one in the trenches because these teams, sure, they can both air it out with the best of them, but if the Lions can get pressure and be able to stop either of these quarterbacks, let's see what happens once they get some adversity because Georgia was able to do that against Tua, um, really make him uncomfortable. And if Alabama's defense is able to do the same against Trevor Lawrence, he could have a real tough time. So now let's move on after college football to the NFL. What a playoff push we had. I actually had so much written for Week 16, but uh, it looks like that's all going to go to waste. I'll put that on the outline on the Patreon for just so you can see what I had ready to go. But uh, the week Week 17... Is what we're going to talk about, and we had some big, big, big drama in this game, or in this week, because coming in there was some stuff decided, but we had some battles that we knew we were going to see. We don't get that too often, and we had three in particular. We had the NFC North, the AFC North, and the AFC South. So let's start with the NFC North. What had to have, what had to, what had to have happened? For the Eagles to get in, they needed a win and a Vikings lost. The Vikings just needed a win to get in. But the Eagles won, the Vikings lost, and the Eagles get into the playoffs. You know, it's, it's crazy. I mean, you hear stuff about, you know, Nick Foles and his magicality. But at least for me, even though the Eagles needed more things to happen, it almost felt like they were going to do it. I mean the Vikings have been playing pretty inconsistently all year and the Eagles were just coming off a huge win buoyed by a Jake Elliott game winning field goal the last second to keep their season alive. Um, so it, it just almost kind of felt inevitable. It's just like okay, they're going to do it again, aren't they? I mean. And speaking from like the game's perspective, you had Nick Foles' magical run last year and he's been playing well so far. Combined with the Redskins' quarterback injuries, they're on like their what third or fourth string quarterback, made an Eagles win likely there, and the Vikings were playing the Bears, who have something, who had something to play for, and a very tough defense. So, I mean, I, I thought this was probably going to happen, and and the one bad thing for the Eagles that came out of this game was that Nick Foles ended up getting hurt in the fourth quarter, which would. Now, if he was not able to play in the long term, all but end the Eagles' chances to advance past the Bears in the first round of the playoffs, which is obviously a very tough defense. So the Eagles, once again, will go to the playoffs, and I think they have a chance to make some noise here. I mean, the defense is playing its best right now, and Nick Foles gained so much experience from playing in last year, playing in last year's playoffs and leading the team to the Super Bowl. Um, it is tough to get a matchup against Mitchell Trubisky, who's playing well, um, but I think they can win. AFC North was the next battle. What needed to happen? The Steelers needed a win and a Ravens loss to get in, and the Ravens needed to win and get in. This year, the Ravens were able to Get that win and advance to the playoffs, which is something they couldn't do last year. If you recall, they lost on their. They had they all they had to do was win, on their, uh, home field, home turf, and they would have gotten in. They were not able to do that, and they did not make the playoffs. But this year they did, so yay! Um, in this game, Lamar Jackson in the game that the Ravens won, Lamar Jackson really showed off his speed. I mean, that was why they drafted him in the first round and he had 22 carries, 90 yards, and two touchdowns. But that's not what you're here to list. You're here to listen to the implications. So I think one thing we could take away from this game is Lamar Jackson, who was drafted in the 32nd, who was, who was the 32nd pick of the draft last year, he has gone 6-1 and one as a starter since coming in for the injured Joe Flacco. And clearly Lamar is the quarterback of the future, at least if you believe in him. But if that's the case, what do you do with Joe Flacco? Once he's fully healthy. I think. Unless like Lamar goes on. And wins the Super Bowl this year. Which I don't see happening. I think you actually still use Flacco. If they still have him. And he's still healthy. Or and he's healthy. I think you start him Because Lamar Jackson. He plays a really physical game. I mean it's reminiscent of like the Cam Newtons of the world. Where he's not. He's a little smarter than Cam Newton was. Back when in his rookie year. But. I mean, he's still going to take some shots. I mean, he's still running that much is still kind of demanding on your body. I mean, he's running as often as, like, a workhorse running back is. 20 carries is nothing to sneeze at. So I think if you hold him off for a little bit, give him more time to work um, on the aspects of his game where he's more raw, I think that could end up paying long-term dividends because, I mean, Joe Flacco is more than serviceable, and you give him some time, you give Jackson some time to work under him, I think that could work out, work out well for the Baltimore Ravens. And now that John Harbaugh is still there, you've got some continuity in the system. Um, that's, what, that's what I would do if I were the Ravens. The poor Steelers, meanwhile, missed the playoffs for the first time since 2013. And for the Steelers, this was a season of streaks. They had a six-game winning streak and a three-game losing streak and back and forth and back and forth. But just, it just comes down to the fact that they were simply... Unable to convert, and they put themselves in precarious positions in too many games. I mean, they had close wins and close losses, but for me at least, the tie against the Browns where they had a chance to win, and also the league given up against the Chargers on Sunday night a few weeks ago come to mind, so it's just, they were too, shall I say, inconsistent and unable to string together performances that allowed them to carry more momentum um, and even help them in games where perhaps they weren't playing their best and they end the season at nine and six and one and are unable to make the playoffs or is it eight and seven and one something the third battle in the nfl on decision sunday was the colts and titans play-in game uh, this was in a a uh, well it's not really a round of 32 but it's a, a round of 16 but it's a it's a tight game. It's a close game. It's a high-intensity game. And in this one, the Titans' one-dimensionality really caught up to them because the Titans were starting Blaine Gabbert, their backup quarterback, with Mariota being hurt. And they were never really super comfortable throwing the ball, and they were especially really uncomfortable throwing the ball with Blaine Gabbert. And the result of that is they struggled to play from behind because getting down, you know, 7 uh 14 nothing is not much when you can throw the ball and you can generate offense. But this Titans team was unable to really generate significant offense quickly. Um, other than really Derrick Henry, they weren't able to do much. And so that ended up hurting them because they were really uncomfortable at the end, having to try to make a run, and um, they never were super into it. Now Andrew Luck and the Colts, because of that loss, advance and the Colts win, advanced to the playoffs after starting 1-5, and five, which is a testament to um, them because Andrew Luck, we didn't know coming into this year how well he was going to play, and yet he put up a great season uh, despite him not playing at all last year, and even after the bad start, they had confidence in themselves, uh, and they were able to make the playoffs. So now the wild card matchups are set for this weekend, Saturday and Sunday, two games a pop. Uh, we got the Colts-Texans, 6 versus 3. This is just interesting cuz it's a divisional matchup. You got the Watson playing Andrew Luck for the third game for the third time this year. And divisional matchups are always fun. You get that the intensity of the rivalry and playing each other twice every year combined with the intensity of it's a playoff game and win or go home. You got the Seahawks and the Cowboys who played earlier this year and the Seahawks won in Seattle, but this time it's in Dallas. The Seahawks haven't been nearly as good on the road. Um, so we'll see if, and Dak Prescott has been playing really well lately, so I think he'll be able to exploit that Seattle defense more than, more than people are thinking. Also in the NF, or the AF, no, I'm back, bouncing back and forth in the AFC and the NFC, but we got the Chargers and the Ravens, Phillip Rivers, and his, he's got his team playing really well, his wide receivers, and Melvin Gordon, who went down with an injury but says he'll be okay, and the Baltimore Ravens, who, as I said, got in by the skin of their teats, uh, also, wait in that Ravens Browns game. Shout out to Baker Mayfield for having his uh, for having his stuff together and putting de- putting together a great first year uh, under the helm in Cleveland. But anyway, Chargers and Ravens tough defense, tough defenses. Um, I think the Chargers will come out of that one. And then the Eagles and the Bears. I think the Bears are going to be the favorites in this game, uh, even though the Eagles have been or are the defending Super Bowl champions. The Ravens have uh, or the Bears too much of a complete team, and I think they will defeat Nick Foles and the Eagles. Uh mini-major topic, well, uh, now that we're done with the NFL and college football. The Dodgers and Reds made a big trade two weeks ago. The Reds acquiring Alex Wood, Matt Kemp, Yasiel Puig, Kyle Farmer, and Cash from the Dodgers in exchange for Homer Bailey, who was subsequently released, and minor league infielders uh, Jeter Downs and Josiah Gray. Uh, I thought... Puig, for what it's worth, Puig in L.A. was a great fit. I mean, Puig was super flamboyant, and the crowd totally bought in. And as a Giants fan, I mean, he was a guy where it's like, okay, so he's a Dodger, and he's flamboyant and flashy, and you hate him, but he was kind of a fun guy to hate. I mean, he would make you feel bad, but I mean, it was fun to root against. I mean, he he's not a bad dude, right? He's a guy who came, made a living, playing baseball, um, and he's just a he's a great personality. I mean, he just seems like a great guy to be around, so... Um, it's bittersweet. I'm 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 very happy to see him lead the division, but I'm kind of sad to see him all the time. Uh, Meanwhile, the Reds get some excitement back after trading away Billy Hamilton, uh, because Billy Hamilton, the speedster who made a bunch of great plays and was kind of the show uh, of that Reds team who hasn't been uh, successful in recent years. But now Puig heads over to Cincinnati um, and will look to have a similar effect. And I think that City will uh, embrace him if he plays well. Um, but the Dodgers clearly want with this trade want to make a large change after losing two straight World Series because they're trading one of the foundational pieces of their current run. I think that's safe to say, and also a fan favorite for years and a reliable player in Matt Kemp, um, who actually had a resurgence this year too. And I guess they're just kind of hoping their prospects pan out. But what this could be, and I, I I don't know, but is this clearing the space for Bryce Harper? That was a report that uh, went. Around the grapevine, um, recently, that would definitely add some juice back into their outfield, and I could totally see Bryce Harper fitting in in LA. I mean, it's a big market; he's a big dude, um, and I, and I could totally see him, uh, and and the LA market embracing him as a, as their next superstar. All right, quick take, uh, courtesy of Tyler Conway of Bleacher Report. Uh, some stats from Kentucky's win over, as a result of Kentucky's win over Penn State in the Citrus Bowl on New Year's Day. This is Kentucky's first 10-win season since 1977, the first time they will finish in the top 25 since 1984, and the first time they've won a bowl game in nearly a decade. Kentucky has kind of been a resurgent college football team this year. I mean, no one knew they were going to be end up being a power like this coming in, especially playing in a tough conference in the SEC. But, you know, it's good to see these schools emerge. And Benny Snell, who set the Kentucky Wildcats rushing record, and and defeating a very good team in Penn State, led by Trace McSorley. So it's always fun to see a new team that we can see compete at a high level. And it looks like we're going to get one that's here to stay in Kentucky. Thank you so much for listening to The Wong Takes Uh, a week later than usual. But nonetheless, still here. Check out the podcast everywhere. Bit.ly slash The Wong Takes. The Wong Takes. Uh, at gmail.com, patreon.com, slash, the long takes. Don't forget to send fan questions, leave voicemails, and rate and subscribe on the podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you so much for listening, as usual, and I will hopefully this time see you for realsies next week.